Good morning, I'm Alicia. I'll be reading the text for today. You can follow along on the screens or in your scripture journals or your Bibles. Um, We're going to be reading Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. It says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thank you, Alicia. We're continuing the series, uh, Rest Assured, this morning. And uh, the title for this morning's message is Confession. Rest Assured in Confession. And uh, as I was thinking about uh, different stories to share um, (laughs) <laughs> the thing that came to mind that made the most sense to me to illustrate some of what we're talking about uh, is actually my one of my wife's least favorite stories that I get to tell. Um, <laughs> I don't know how many of you guys have your driver's license, um, but if you have your driver's license and you've been driving for any amount of time, you know uh, the moment where a light starts to change, right? And people like to say that yellow to red is orange, right? Have you ever heard that? Like, no, it was orange. And your kids are like, no, that was red, dad. You know, Um, I don't tend to be um, a super reckless driver, in my opinion. Um, No, I I really don't uh, think I I am. But there are moments where all of a sudden a light is changing and you're in that in-between, like, wait, do I go? Do I stop? Do I go? Do I stop? And uh, there was one time in particular, like I said, one of my wife's least favorite stories. Um, We were on vacation. We were in Ocean City, Maryland, and uh, we were on vacation with her parents. And so we had decided to follow her parents uh, to dinner that night. And so we didn't know where we were going. And it was back when you had to like print stuff off to know where you're going, right? MapQuest, anybody <laughs> remember that? It's so crazy. Um, but I didn't have the convenience of just being like, oh, we'll catch up. And so there, we're going down this main drag, and I'm following them, and all of a sudden, they go through the light, and the light turns yellow as they're going under it, and so it's about to turn red, and I know it is, and I'm hitting the gas and the brake and the gas and the brake, and it's kind of like, uh, and we're going, you know, whatever, 30 miles an hour, 35, something like that, and we have my oldest child, my first child, is still somewhat of a newborn at the time, so this is about 12 years ago, uh, 11 years ago or so, and so I'm kind of pumping the gas and the brake. You, you know what I'm talking about, right, when you're in between. And so I'm watching my daughter kind of be like, <clears throat> you know, her eyes are like popping out. I'm like, uh, and so for the sake of her and her stability and her health and all of that, it was safer for us not to lock up the brakes and watch her be dismembered. Instead, I just thought, you know what, let's just gun it. And so I hit the gas. We went through. Meredith's like, that was definitely red. I was like, eh, it's kind of orange, right? Like that's such a stupid thing. It wasn't orange. And so I was kind of like, yeah, it wasn't really red. And then all of a sudden the police officer that was right next to the light, literally right next to the light, turns on his lights and I go, happy vacation. The Lord is with us. And so this police officer pulls out. She's like, I told you it was red. I was like, he's, he's probably not pulling us over. Like he's probably just pulling somebody else over that did something way worse than us. And so I kind of get out of his way and he slows down. It was super confusing. Um, he was pulling me over. And so I get pulled over and my wife gets emotional and she's like, you gotta be kidding me. I can't believe it. We're gonna get a ticket. I was like, he hasn't given us a ticket yet. And, uh, and so we're there on the side of the road and 
and he's getting out, you know, he walks up to the side of the car. Obviously, you know the whole deal. Do you know why I pulled you over? And, and so there I am completely ruining our family vacation and my in-laws are driving down the road and they have like this awesome picture of the whole thing in their rearview mirror, I'm sure. And, uh, and so the question I want to ask you this morning and the thing that I want you to complete, uh, contemplate is where do you turn when you have a problem of your own making? Where do you turn when you have a problem of your own making? It's interesting because when we're faced with a problem that is really ultimately our fault, we come up with a list of reasons why it's not our fault, typically, right? It's like, well, I didn't see the light. The light wasn't clearly displayed. There's all these excuses, right? You were talking to me. It was for the sake of the child. I don't know. It, like, it list goes on. I had to follow them to get to dinner. There's all these reasons and excuses, but ultimately, who is it that you turn to? Where is it that you turn when the problem is actually of your own making, most of us turn to a trusted person. And if we're honest, the reason why we turn to a trusted person is because we want them to say what it is that we want to hear. <laughs> Be like, I'm right, right? Right? And they're like, uh, yeah, you're right. You're like, okay, you're still my friend. <laughs> we, in fact, some of us, uh, the trusted person is ourselves because we've already tried everyone else and they're not telling us quite what it is that we want to hear. And so instead, we just kind of turn to ourselves. We kind of justify our own actions. We turn inward. If you're wired this way, you kind of shut down. You kind of look at yourself. And whether it's ourselves or someone else, when we can't find what it is that we're looking for in people, then we even turn to things. We turn to things to try to, to justify, comfort, cope. We turn to work, to busy ourselves. We have this issue that we've walked into, this thing that is beyond question our fault. We need to own it. And so what we do is we just kind of immerse ourselves in the busyness of work. Maybe some of us turn to food to try to cope with the reality. I'm not guilty of that. I'm <laughs> like food's dripping out of my mouth, right? We turn to social media to just kind of engage the rest of the world as if that doesn't lead to more depression right? Because you look at everybody else's perfect life and you're like, what the heck? My life is a mess. <laughs> you name it. We turn to so many different things. At the end of the day, they don't give us what it is that we're looking for. They don't fill the void. They don't fill the need. They don't answer the question. You see, so whether it's yourself, someone else, or something else, what we're really in pursuit of is a form of comfort. When we come face to face with the reality that something is a problem of our own making, we want comfort. That's what we want. We want a sense of everything's going to be okay. It's a human condition, Christian or not, believer or skeptic. As humans, we want to be comforted. We want to rest assured that everything's going to be okay. We just want to know that it's going to be all right, that we can get through this thing, whatever it might be. The best form of comfort is when we find someone that can identify with our struggles and our pain. Just the idea that you aren't alone somehow eases the pain, right? I'm sure you've had those moments where you've felt uh, desperate and frustrated and alone in a situation, whether the problem was of your own making or something that was inconsequential uh, to, to your fault, if you will. Just something that happens to you and all of a sudden you see or meet someone that has walked a similar journey. There's like a peace that comes with that, like this you too type idea, where all of a sudden you're sort of comforted that you're not alone in the difficulty or in the pain. I remember experiencing this when I was trying to uh, articulate the pain associated with a kidney stone. 
Right? I had a kidney stone. I'm, I'm trying to explain it to somebody, and they're just looking at me like, yeah, it seems like it hurts. And like, no, like, it really hurts. And they're like, yeah, we, we get it. You know, like, I get it. It hurts. And, and so then I talked to someone that had recently given birth, and they almost had the idea of, of a similar pain. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't even keep a straight face. There, there was a woman in the hospital that made the mistake of saying, listen, I've given birth and I've had a kidney stone and the kidney stone was way worse. And my wife was like, what? She's like, that is not true. She didn't give naturally. <laughs> she used drugs. I'm telling you, it has to be worse. I was like, you just wait. The, kid, the Lord will bless you with a kidney stone, my child. And you can walk the journey. No, I don't wish that on anybody. But when you've experienced the pain of a kidney stone or anything in common, of course, I'm joking around about that, but just this idea of like, oh, you know that pain. Like it resonates. You understand the pain. It wasn't the same type of pain, but it was similar. You understand my situation. There's a level of comfort that comes with knowing that someone else has walked part of your journey. Shared experiences. It comforts us. The Hebrew Christians were in pursuit of the same type of comfort that we pursue today. You see, the the Hebrew Christians that received this letter were struggling with the old covenant versus the new covenant. And they were uh, being tempted to return to the religion, for lack of a better word, for the religion of their forefathers. And here's the tension. They could travel to Jerusalem and see. They could physically see the temple, the priests ministering at the altars but they couldn't see Jesus. You see, they could see all of the things that used to be part of the way that they would engage with the Lord, but they couldn't see Jesus. And so they started to question the authority of Jesus. That's part of the reason why the author of Hebrews has spent the first several chapters talking about the superiority of Christ over angelic beings, over Moses, over even Joshua. He's going through this to say, listen, Jesus is the son of God. They were going through difficulties and persecution, and so naturally, religious activity at the temple, going through the motions, if you will, offered a form of comfort, something concrete, tangible, right? Isn't that really what we're searching for when we're searching for comfort? It's kind of like when people say that, they mean well, but when they say that thing like, I'll pray for you, and you're like, okay, what else? You're like, well, that's all I got. (laughs) Like, that kind of seems like the raw end of a deal. Because we want something tangible. We want something visible. We want something that can offer us hope. We want comfort. So sometimes words fall short of what it is that we're searching for. The Hebrew Christians, they wanted something concrete and visible. Something familiar. What a trap, right? What a trap that in the midst of the difficulties of our life, in the midst of the things that we come face to face with, that we have to own, that, that are really our problems, there are situations, and maybe the rest of the world, we've kind of tricked into believing that we're somehow in the wake of other people's choices, but deep down in the recesses of our own heart and mind, we realize this is our issue, like this is our problem. We situated, we positioned ourselves, we made choices that brought us to this point. That in the moment of those situations, we, we want comfort. We even want maybe somebody to lie to us, tell us that it's not our fault. We want to turn to things that are familiar, things that are concrete. Listen, it's much easier to walk by sight 
than it is by faith. Let me say that again. It's easier to walk by sight than by faith. It's way easier to make decisions based on what we see, touch, and feel than it is and what it is that we believe and trust. It's risky business when we're talking about faith, when we're talking about being comforted by the Lord in the midst of our difficulty. And so verse 14 says, since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavenlies, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Basically the author is saying, listen, you want a high priest? And the high priest is someone that they're familiar with. And there are a lot of different high priests that are mentioned throughout scripture, but there's never this idea of a great high priest. It's like a way to one up someone like, hey, there's a high priest. Have you heard of the great one? Like what? The great high priest. And so the author is saying, listen, there's someone even greater than the high priest. We have a great high priest, a high priest that would go through a process different than the typical high priest that you know here on this earth. To understand the context a little bit, to understand the Levitical process and what it is that these Hebrew Christians would be familiar with, is that there's, there are priests that administer certain levels of offerings and uh, different actions within the temple or tabernacle. And then there was one high priest. And the one high priest would go through a cleansing process once a year. It was actually rather gruesome where they would literally be covered with head, from head to toe with the blood of animals sacrificed. And they would go through a cleansing process so that they could go and pass through a veil Behind this veil was called the Holy of Holies. And inside this Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever watched Indiana Jones, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Some of you. Anyway, so there, there's a, the Ark of the Covenant is literally into the Holy of Holies behind this veil. And one time a year, the, the presence of God would come and inhabit this Holy of Holies where the high priest would make atonement for the sins of a nation. We'll talk more about this in a minute. But I want you to, to catch this. If you understand the context, then you realize a high priest passes through a veil in order to have an encounter with a God that would otherwise strike him dead if he didn't go through the process of cleansing. But the scripture says, a great high priest who passed, not through a veil, through the heavenlies, Jesus the son of God. So Jesus did not pass through a veil because of animal sacrifices, but his perfect sinless sacrifice for you and me is what allowed him to pass through the heavens into the very throne room of God. Not the holy of holies, but into the very throne room of God, into the presence of God himself as his son. And he's there to be our mediator. This is a huge deal. This is rocking their known theology. And it has tremendous impact even in our lives today. You might say that it's good news, but you still feel alone. Right? It's kind of that person that's praying for you and you're grateful and you're thankful for the prayers of people. You want that, but there's still an emptiness. And so that's great news, but I still feel alone. How does the gospel actually impact our capacity to rest assured? What are the actual implications that we can hold on to that are visible, that are concrete? Well, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, 
yet without sin. Christ's work is not a distant, far-off, unconnected event that doesn't connect to our own experiences. Sometimes we think that, that God was so holy that Christ was so perfect that we can't connect in some way, but the reality is we can, we can look to Jesus and say, you too? We can have those moments of commonality. The same way that you can look at someone and say, oh my gosh, you have that same experience? What this text is telling us is that the high priest is able to sympathize with our situations and our circumstances, that Jesus himself has walked the journey you've walked, and yet without sin. He knows our struggles. We can find comfort in him. We can find comfort in the reality that he understands the pain that we've walked through. So we don't have to search for a ripped-off version to self-soothe or to numb the pain. Jesus knows what we've gone through. And maybe you might say, like, I don't know, though. Like, the idea that he might be able to sympathize, I suppose, is helpful, but does he really know the situational pain that I'm in? He knows our struggles, but not specific to our situation, we may say. The reality is this. The word of God says that he never leaves us or forsakes us. That he's walking with you. That he's literally beside you. Psalm 23 says that he walks with us. That he leads us through the valley. You're not alone. And so even though he doesn't um, maybe realize very situationally to your circumstance. I, I used this example a couple weeks back, like Jesus has never been fired from his job, right? <laughs> Be like, hey, this just in, you're no longer the son of God. What? Yeah, we're replacing you. <laughs> just seems like, you know, his end of year statements came back a little bit sharper than you. They really performed, so we're gonna have to let you go. <laughs> oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> like, so you might sit there and say, wait, God doesn't understand this. Like, God's never been dumped. God's never gone through a divorce. God's never dealt with this issue. God never had kids. I mean, holy cow, right? Jesus, does he really understand? Here's the deal. If he never leaves you and never forsakes you, it means he's walking beside you. So he knows the situation of your heart and life because he's walking it with you. He knows your, your heart and your pain. He understands the things that you whisper in the inside of your heart and mind that you would never even give voice to out of embarrassment or out of shame. He knows those things and he loves you. He's walking beside you. If you can understand that this morning, then you can understand the comfort that comes with the reality of being able to confess him as your savior and Lord. Let's hold fast to our confession. That's the way the verse ends hold fast to our confession. First uh, a scripture I want to read to you, Romans 10, 9 through 10, says this. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That we actually confess him as Lord and Savior. Now listen, it's, 
This is not some linguistic key or some secret mantra, like, did you say the thing? When I, when I was a kid, I thought, listen, in order to have interaction with God, there's a certain way that you have to pray, and there's a certain process, and if you mess it up, boom, hell, you know? But it's not like that. It's, it's a relationship with a, a loving God. It says, listen, will, will you just confess him as Lord and leader of your life? We can rest assured in our confession. We can rest assured in our confession in the sense that if we confess Jesus to be Lord and Savior of our life, that suddenly we don't have to do life alone. That in the midst of the difficulty and the pain, he's walking beside us. He's walking us through the pain and hurt. We want to be rescued so often. Like, hey God, will you just show me you're real by making all of this go away? I'm going to go to sleep. You do the work. You know, you wake up and you're like, what? My life still stinks. God, are you even real? <laughs> it's so jacked up. That's nothing that, that Jesus promised. He says he'll never leave you or forsake you, that he's walking you through the pain. He's walking you through it. Verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Throne of grace. Verse 16, this, this idea of a throne of grace is absolutely new information to the then Hebrew Christians. So this is new language, the throne of grace. They don't even know what that means. It's, it has profound implications. You see, God's throne was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant behind a veil in the Holy of Holies. The top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. So the throne of God was not a place of grace. It was not a throne of grace. It was a throne of mercy. So Exodus 25, 17 through 22 actually breaks down the reality of, of what was called the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. It was called a mercy seat, but never ever a throne of grace. You see, there's a difference between mercy and grace. Under the old covenant, common people couldn't even enter in to the holy areas of the tabernacle or the, uh, or the temple. So only priests could go into the holy places. And like I've already mentioned, only the, holy, uh, only the high priest could go into the holy of holies. According to Leviticus chapter 16, the, uh, the high priest alone would go into this veil, as I mentioned before. And the thing that was interesting, and I've mentioned in the past, if you've been at Centerway for any amount of time, they would uh, they'd tie a rope around his ankle and that rope would have a bell on it. And so you can imagine, first of all, the reality is somewhat of a gruesome sight where they're making sacrifices and as they make these sacrifices for the, the sins, because somebody has to pay the price for the sins. And so the animals that are blameless will be the offering that's set up for, for the redemption and the atonement of the people. And so they get this blood of this animal and they put it over the high priest and the high priest would go through all these cleansing process and they would tie a rope to his ankle and he would walk past this thick veil and as he would go into this veil, into the Holy of Holies, if there was any process done improperly, if there was any sin in him, uh, he would be struck dead by the presence of God. God can't be in the presence of, of sin. And so literally, as God's presence would come and inhabit the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, if, he, if anything was impure, he would be struck dead. And that's why they would have the rope attached to his ankle. So they could pull the rope, 
ring the bell, and he could pull it back. And they're like, all right, he's still good. <laughs> what a nice thought, right? Be like, yeah, hook him up to the rope. See you later, Bob. They're like, we did this right, right? Oh, yeah, we did it right. We're good, yeah. Go ahead. Say hi to God for me, you know? And so they'd walk right in, and if, uh, if he didn't go through the process, they could pull his body out. Gruesome, disturbing. Listen, under the old covenant, sheep died for the atonement of the sins of their shepherd. But under the new covenant, the shepherd, Jesus, atoned for the sins of his sheep. That's us. You see, it flips the whole covenant upside down. It says, wait, so you're telling me that sheep don't have to lay down their lives for the sins of their shepherd, but in in some cosmic switch, in some unbelievable, profound, amazing reality, God himself came as the sinless sheep and laid down his life and shed his blood and raised from the dead so that we, his sheep, could be atoned for, that we could be free, that we could be free from from the, the death and the consequences and the implications of the sin of our life. You see, when Jesus hung on a cross, he died for our sins. And Matthew 27 records something that if you're not connecting the dots, you might just breeze over as you're reading the word. But Matthew 27 says that the earth shook when Jesus breathed his last. And that the temple itself broke. That it ruptured. And that inside the temple, the veil torn in two from the top to the bottom profound implications. You see, when Jesus laid down his life, it released the presence of God to be among common people. No, long do we, no longer do we need a mediator priest to go through the process. No longer is there only one that can pray on our behalf or intercede on our behalf, but it's Jesus himself that passed through the heavenlies as the great high priest that stands in the throne room of God as your mediator, as my mediator, right before his father. He paid the price so that we can come confidently to the throne of God as his children. It's incredible. Before we can understand grace, we need to understand the gospel. We need to understand it because otherwise grace is just a moment that we try to extend kindness to someone else. But grace is far more profound than that. And when we've we've experienced the depth of grace, we then have the capacity to award it to others. You see, verse 16 says, with confidence, what? Draw near. Draw near. There's action on our part. Unfortunately, we often think that the actions required of us is to somehow be found holy in front of a blameless God. But that's not true. Jesus has already paid that price and the action on our part is to simply draw near. It's an if-then situation. If we draw near, then what? Then we get mercy and grace. If we draw near, we get mercy and grace. And so I'm sitting there in my car on vacation, and my wife is very emotional and more probably angry at me than she is upset about what's about to happen because it's all my fault, 100% my fault. And so this officer walks up and uh, he says, you know, do you know why I pulled you over? 
And evidently, you're supposed to say, no, I'm not sure. Because when you say yes, you're essentially committing guilty to the crime. And so I wasn't going to lie to him. Like, I'm just not going to. I'm going to own it. And so I just look at him. I said, yeah, I know why he pulled me over. I'm guessing it's because I ran that red light. He goes, excuse me? And I said, yeah, I like hit the brake. And, you know, my kid's like, ah! you know, and then I hit the gas and I hit the brake again. And I'm following my in-laws. And I just thought, you know what? I'll go through it. There was no car moving yet. And uh, so I ran the red light. And he's standing there looking at me. He goes, so you're, you ran the red light? I was like, yeah. Was like, All right. So he walks away. And Meredith's like, this is ridiculous. We're going to get a ticket. Who knows? It's going to cost hundreds of dollars. We're on vacation. And she's not that fragile. It was just one of those moments. You know what I mean? Where it's just kind of all coming unglued. So he comes back up and he says, hey, I have to tell you something. I go, yeah. He goes, you know how many people I pulled over today at this light? I said, no. He told me the number. I don't remember. He said, 100% of them up until you lied to me. And I was like, really? And he goes, oh, yeah, every time I've heard just about everything I can imagine. He goes, you're the first one to actually own it and just be like, yeah, I ran the red light. He goes, so I'm not going to give you a ticket today. Which then made my wife mad in a different way. <laughs> She's like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> he goes, so I'm not going to give you a ticket today. Um, he goes, instead, I'm going to give you this. And he pulls out this amazing piece of paper. It's like a half sheet of cardstock piece of paper. He goes, this is a written warning. <laughs> I was like, that's amazing. I, and I was, he's like, it does not carry any fine with it or anything. It simply tells you that you did something illegal and you should stop. I'm like, okay. Like, that's an amazing sheet of paper. I tried to frame it. My wife wasn't cool with it, so I didn't. But in either case, he hands it over to me, and it's just this amazing, profound relief and joy. And, and my mother-in-law has never been more proud of me than <laughs> she still talks about. She's like, yeah, you ran a red light and got a written warning. The reason I'm telling you this is because he extended mercy towards me, and then he gave me grace. And it's a perfect example, although it's not that great of an example because it involved me breaking the law. The reality is it's a perfect example because it involved me breaking the law. Because every single person in this room breaks the law. We break the law of the old covenant. We break the law of behavior. We break the law of all of the things that are required for us to be holy and sinless. 100% of us are sinners. Sinners saved by grace, right? So we've all broken the law. And so there I am, I've broken the law and he extends mercy and then he gives me grace. So what's the difference? Mercy means God doesn't give us what we do deserve. He doesn't give us what we do deserve. Think about that. When you're like, mercy, and you're pleading for mercy, what you're pleading for is don't give me what I deserve. And so the God of heaven shows restraint. And so the mercy seat is about restraint. The mercy seat at the top of the Ark of the Covenant is about God restraining his wrath. So these offerings that are going before him is God restraining his wrath against the sin of mankind until one could come and pay the true full penalty for our sins. And at that moment, when the penalty was fully paid, he awards grace. Because the, pain, the penalty is filled by himself, by God himself. Because here's the deal. Grace means God gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy means we don't get what we do deserve. Grace means we get what we don't deserve. I deserved a ticket. He gave me a written warning. He showed restraint 
And then he gave me a written warning. It's such a small example compared to the hugeness of what it is that we're awarded. But it's a perfect example of a breaking of the law and the reality of what it is that God does for us. Grace defined as the unmerited love and favor of God towards humankind. Listen, you offer nothing to the salvation story besides the sin that makes it necessary. That's it. That's what you bring to the table. We don't deserve grace, but we desperately need it. Without Christ, God's throne is a throne of judgment where people will bear the full responsibility for their sins, the full penalty of their sins. By surrendering to Jesus, by confessing Jesus, by confessing him as Lord and Savior of our life, it means that we can come boldly and confidently to God. We can come boldly and confidently to God. Not just for the sin of our lives, although that is monumental, but the ripple effect is larger. You see, because of the relationship that my kids have with me, they're allowed to just storm into any room whenever they want. And even in a moment of frustration, all they have to do is say, Dad, I need you. All bets are off, right? I don't care if I'm standing in front of the President of the United States. Hang on, my kid needs me. They can come boldly into any room I'm in. We can come confidently to God if we confess him as Lord and Savior. You don't have to be alone. In fact, if you confess him as Lord and Savior, you're not alone. That's a lie. The truth is he'll never leave or forsake you. We say all the time here that the text requires something from us. And so I want to challenge you this morning as we leave this place that you consider the implications of this text in your life, not only for your personal salvation and your relationship with God, but ultimately even this question, which is this, what will I bring to God confidently? What will I bring to God confidently? I want to challenge you as you go throughout this week or or maybe even this morning that you would consider what is it that God can deal with that you don't have to? That you're trying to figure out and negotiate and work out and there's things that you own in it. There's things that you own in it that maybe even the people closest to you don't realize how much you own it. (laughs) But God knows you own it. Can you just confidently go to him and lay it before him and say, God, I, I don't have the strength. I need your mercy. And could I just ask for some grace? God, would you give me what I don't deserve in the midst of this situation? Will you walk me through the pain of this? I don't know what the application looks like for you today, but maybe it looks like your life. Maybe the thing that you need to bring confidently to God is your very life. Maybe you've never surrendered and asked him to be the Lord and leader of your life, and so this morning maybe your application is to come before God and say, Lord, would you, would you forgive me my sins? Would you come and be the Lord and leader of my life? In fact, if you would just bow your heads for a moment, you can keep your eyes open if you want, just look at the ground. I don't want you to be distracted as the musicians make their way up. As we wrap things up this morning, I want you to consider there's more things to do, obviously, and there's time right now for us to practice what it looks like to respond to what it is that God would have you to respond to. As you consider that, I want to I ask you if it's, if it's your life, today, that you would just consider praying a prayer in the quietness of your mind. You don't have to come up. You don't 
have to raise your hand or anything like that. It could just be as simple as praying a prayer where you're at. Lord, I'm a sinner in need of your grace, in need of your mercy. Lord, would you forgive me? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. That's you this morning and that's your application. I want to challenge you to consider that. Maybe for others of you, it's that you have a broken heart. People have just let you down. You put your trust in people and they took advantage of that. So maybe this morning, you can bring that confidently to God and say, listen, Lord, would you heal my heart? Would the love that you have for me be enough to sustain the joy that I'm searching for? Maybe there's unmet expectations. Maybe there's even habitual sin. And this morning, whether there's some type of sin issue in your life, you can come boldly and confidently to God and just ask him to reveal the root issue. Why is it that you're seeking for belonging in things that will never offer true belonging? Why are you seeking for joy in things that are just ripped off versions of joy? What will you bring confidently to God this morning? Maybe this morning you might say, I've surrendered my life. He's walked me through the brokenness. Daily I confess my sin. And so this morning I want to challenge you. Maybe your application is to have open hands. To say, you know what? Because of the grace God has awarded me, I want to award grace to others. Everything is his and so therefore I'll live with open hands. I don't know what the application might be for you this morning specifically, but I know that God wants to do something in each and every one of our hearts and lives. And so let's just be open as we respond to whatever it is that the Lord might be whispering to us.